This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. Floods, droughts, locusts, climate change. There is a lot going on in and around us in Africa and super fast. We are all seeing and feeling the effect it has on how we eat, move around and even how we can make a living. For this reason, join me, Sophie Mbogwa, a Kenyan environmental journalist, for a weekly podcast, The Africa Climate Conversations. Africa Climate Conversations aims at helping you understand what climate change is all about, how it affects you and your family, what is being done in Africa, and what you can do to adapt and mitigate to its impacts, no matter where you are in Africa. Hello. Welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Conversations. This is a weekly podcast dedicated to discussing climate change issues in Africa. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. So, for the last two weeks, we have been talking about COVID-19 and climate change, as well as economic impacts in Africa. This week, we look into why energy is critical to nations' economic recovery globally. And to discuss this, I'm joined by Linus Mofo of the Africa Climate Policy Center. Thank you so much, Linus, for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and the Africa Climate Policy Center. Okay, yeah. So uh, my name is Linus Mofo. I'm the senior environmental affairs officer in charge of energy, infrastructure, and climate change at the African Climate Policy Center of the Economic Commission for Africa. Okay based in Addis Ababa. Okay. So the African Climate um, Policy Center is, 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 is a small think tank within the think tank. Uh, let me start by saying the Economic Commission for Africa is one of the five regional economic commissions of the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Each of them mandated for their regions to support their member states with um, social and economic uh, development. And they do this in three functions. One is uh, to serve as a think tank Mm-hmm. to support um, policy, uh, to serve as a, a convener of the member states on key issues, mm-hmm. and to provide operational uh, support, i.e. advisory services based on demand to the member states. Mm-hmm. So the African Climate Policy Center being a subunit of that entity basically does the same, but just focusing on, on climate change and development. How do we support African countries uh, to uh, deliver uh, climate resilient development on the continent. Mm. We do that through the think tank work. So we do uh, analysis and research to support policy. We also convene member states on key issues, particularly on our climate change and development in Africa conference, which I've been running now for the past nine years. And we normally do that just before the conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, COP. Yeah. And, uh, and that basically convenes African countries to consolidate African positions that then get taken to the COP. And we also uh, support countries on the third one, on the operations, mm-hmm. based on advice uh, or requests from member states. So countries like um, Liberia, um, Malawi, and so on, who have come to us to say, we need help on this. We help them to... Um, Leading to COP21, for example, to, to support them with uh, how they construct the NDCs. Now, some of them are coming back to us to say, how do we now revise our NDCs? Because as you know, 2020 
is the year for revision of the NDCs. We have support to countries like Cameroon, Senegal, Ethiopia on how they can use integrated implementation of climate, land, energy, water approaches to implementing the SDGs. Uh, we're supporting a lot many other countries based on the demand that comes from them uh, in terms of climate and information services and so forth. So that's how we function. Mm -hmm. So we're a small think tank within a think tank with our focus on climate and uh, development. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for that explanation. So we, the world currently is going through a global pandemic. And one of the things, the key things about Africa is that it's a continent that has abundant energy resources from hydro, solar, wind to geothermal energies. But still today, nearly 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa do not have access to electricity. We have seen countries like Kenya, Ethiopia, Ghana making significant effort in terms of electrification in their countries. But um, yeah. I just wanted to actually start um, understanding to what extent is um, Africa energy deficient? Yeah, the energy uh, deficiency in Africa is uh, a chronic thing. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, you've uh, actually highlighted some of the, the, the challenges like having close to, to uh, 600 million people. In mm. fact, the recent UN uh, um, tracking SDG 7, mm -hmm. which is access to clean and affordable energy report for 2020, shows mm -hmm. that over about 780 million people worldwide mm -hmm. do not have electricity. Mm. And um, 580 something million of these people are in Africa. So Africa is the most, is the least energized region in the whole world. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if we continue at the same policy levels, at the same levels of ambition, we will be having in 2030 about the same number of people without access. So whilst in other regions, the electrification or access to energy is uh, getting better, mm -hmm. in Africa it is not. Notwithstanding the efforts that you just mentioned, that countries like Kenya, Ethiopia, Ghana, and so on, mm -hmm. Lesotho, Swatini are all making in improving electrification, well, the thing is that population growth is outpacing the the gains in electrification. And so if we don't do something a bit more urgent and more ambitious, we will see be in this chronic um, deficit situation uh, uh, over the next 10 years. And as you said, this is happening. It is a paradox because you're talking about a continent that is so blessed with abundant uh, energy sources, including fossil fuel sources, renewables, mm -hmm. uh, over, uh, over 360 gigawatts of uh, hydropower, uh, 20 gigawatts of uh, geothermal, 120 gigawatts of wind, solar is just so abundant, and so forth, bioenergy, and even some marine resources. Mm -hmm. Yet, in the continent, the installed capacity in terms of, uh, for electricity is only about 230 gigawatts. Mm -hmm. uh, just to give you uh, an indication of scale, that is uh, just about 10% of the installed capacity in China. Mm -hmm. So the whole of Africa mm -hmm. has the installed capacity of just about 10% of what you have in China, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. just about 60% of what you have in India. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if we are going to develop and be more resilient, the issue of energy has to be treated um, uh, with more agency and ambition. And, and again, just to give you even more perspective, 
those 230 gigawatts of capacity are mostly concentrated in North African countries and South Africa. And to give you even better perspective, when you exclude North African countries, mm -hmm. the rest of Africa has the same capacity as what South Africa has. Mm -hmm. So that is a serious um, uh, undercapacity that needs um, urgent effort and ambition to address. Otherwise, we're going to be in a situation where uh, development uh, in terms of what we have in the SDGs, the 23rd Agenda for Sustainable Development, the African Union's Agenda 2063, all of those objectives, including other national development plans, will not be met. Mm -hmm. Why is it that Africa is so energy deficient for years? Actually, I'm talking about sub-Saharan African countries with exemption mm -hmm. from South Africa. Yes. So, uh, again, as I said, this is a paradox because countries that have got huge amounts of um, different forms of renewable and other forms of energy resources. But I think it's been many years of uh, chronic underinvestment uh, in generation, chronic underinvestment in distribution, uh, in transmission, and indeed in distribution. In fact, in some countries, um, you will, it is common to find a situation where you could have less than 50% of the population without access to energy. But the amount of uh, electricity being generated cannot be consumed because there is no uh, infrastructure to take the electricity to where it is needed. Mm -hmm. So it's many factors, long, long years of underinvestment in generation, many years of underinvestment in transmission and distribution. Mm -hmm. I also find majority of these steel countries, like if, for example, you find Kenya has uh, a power generation capacity of uh, 2,270 megawatts um, against the demand of about 1,586 megawatts. But you'll find almost 20% of this generated power is lost due to distribution and transmission inefficiency. And transmission losses, yeah. Yeah. So you find many of sub-Saharan African countries for years have concentrated on electricity generation, also ignoring efficiency transmission and distribution networks. Is this also something that a majority of uh, sub-Saharan African countries probably have to address? Yes, of course, they have to address this. Um, and just to say that transmission losses, transmission and distribution losses are not only in Africa, they're everywhere. This is normal. Mm -hmm. But um, of course, there can be more investments to have more efficient ways of transmission to minimize losses, yeah, as well as in, in distribution. Mm. But yeah, those are areas where you can gain because where you already have a very low capacity and then what you generate from that low capacity you lose uh, in terms of transmission and distribution, it doesn't make sense. So it is equally important to invest in those. Mm. And talking about in where transmission and distribution, mm -hmm. another uh, challenge is that uh, I mentioned that in some countries you could have a situation where the country is generating more than what they can consume because they don't have the infrastructure to take the electricity to where it's needed. Yeah. But if African countries had invested in interconnections to link countries together, then it is possible for that uh, excess capacity to be utilized elsewhere and also bring revenue. So it makes economic sense that countries should think seriously about how they invest in cross-border interconnections and systems. Mm -hmm. And that interconnection is what some of the continental agendas, such as the Africa Continental Free Trade Area seeks to address, right? Yes, I mean, there are many interconnections which are part of the, the, the Program for Infrastructure Development in Africa, PIDA. Mm -hmm. And um, 
bringing on those interconnections is part of the regional integration agenda, which is now going to be uh, uh, embodied in the Africa uh, Continental uh, Free Trade um, Area Agreement. So again, this is now an opportunity to, to see how can we build the power systems uh, of African countries in ways that capitalize and, and ride on the AFCFTA as a way of addressing the energy situation um, on the continent. We already have power pools. We have the Southern Africa power pool, mm -hmm. West Africa, mm -hmm. East Africa, Central Africa, and the Comelec and so on. So if we can connect these power pools together, then there is, that is one of the ways of addressing the energy situation uh, on the continent because where energy is produced and cannot be used, it can be used elsewhere where it is needed. Mm -hmm. And Africa is thinking of this at a time where in terms of climate-wise, um, in 2015, we saw nations come together and adopt um, the Paris Agreement and agreed to put uh, to keep the global temperatures below two degrees and endeavor to take it as low as 1.5 degrees Celsius. And if we are to achieve that, then that means that nations have to make sure that uh, emissions have to be reduced in by 45% uh, over the next decade and go to, near, uh, to zero emissions by 2050. So um, Africa is at a point where we have to, as much as we have abundance in terms of um, fossil fuels that we can use to generate energy, then we have to also think of renewables perhaps to for us to keep the global temperatures within that particular degree, uh, below two degrees Celsius. But thinking about African continent as a continent that is responsible for only about 4% of emissions, global emissions, is Africa disadvantaged? No, indeed, as you say, um, Africa's uh, emissions are very low in a way to start with. But mm -hmm. Africa is the last uh, frontier for any transformative global investments in clean energy. Mm -hmm. In the sense that um, if Africa has got to meet its development objective, then amount of energy needed is going to be a lot. And then if you were to consider the options possible to providing that energy on a least cost basis, we don't know which, what the energy mix will be. Mm -hmm. But if we then say that energy can be met um, mainly from clean energy sources, then that will be the contribution to avoided emissions that Africa would have been contributing because they already have very low emissions uh, anyways. Okay. And then, as I said, if we're also able to join the cross-border power systems, it means that you can actually optimize the generation of those clean energy sources because it is cheaper to generate uh, wind where the resource is highest. It makes economic sense that way you generate solar where the resource is highest, you generate hydro where the resource is highest, and when you connect all of them together, then you have a more resilient power system. And in fact, that can also help to, to, to uh, increase climate resilience because quite a number of uh, power systems in Africa are hydro-based. And with climate change, mm -hmm. uh, we can have low uh, flows happening. Mm -hmm. And if those hydro assets are not generating as much, then at any one time because, or at any one season because of uh, extreme droughts and so on, then we could have more generation coming from other sources like wind and solar and geothermal to balance uh, the decline from uh, hydro. So thinking smart about Africa's energy system is having kind of um, uh, resilient approach. And that is why uh, we at the Economic Commission for Africa have actually uh, come up with an initiative called the SDG7, 
-hmm. initiative mm -hmm. for Africa. And the idea is to say that we recognize that there have been chronic um, underinvestment for years and that this investment now have to be more ambitious, but also recognizing that they cannot come solely from the public sources because public sources have got limited. Uh, the, the fiscal space is getting smaller mm -hmm. and there are more challenging needs as well for health, education, and so on. So we need to get these investments to come from the private sector. But then how can we uh, ensure that the private sector can come in with the huge investments that are needed? Mm -hmm. So the initiative was then designed, or is designed on three pillars. Mm -hmm. The first pillar is sustainability. But the entry point is how can we, how can the countries involved use the Paris Agreement, their nationally determined contributions to climate action, NDCs, mm -hmm. increase the ambition and the action there, through clean energy. Mm -hmm. And why is the investors that are those who commit to uh, uh, the Paris Agreement to, to, to reducing emission uh, to clean energy. And of course, also having a business sustainability dimension that they can make a modest return on their investment. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing is that there are policy and regulatory challenges that have to be addressed for the investments to happen. Absolutely. And, and also the participating entities then have to ensure that they subscribe to what we have in the UN called the UN principles, the UN supported principles for responsible investment. Mm -hmm. So why the countries adopt to address or commit to address the policy and regulatory issues that are challenging the possibility of financing to come and also subscribing to these principles of responsible investments, the investors them to themselves too have to commit to those principles. And then, and then that addresses the issues of governance. And mm -hmm. so when you address sustainability, you address governance, we believe that it will be much easier now to go to the market under the third pillar of finance to find the monies that are needed to invest, not only in generation, but also in transmission and distribution to address the energy needs of uh, Africa. Okay. Because financing is key if we are to achieve this and looking at yes. how much the countries are already spending in terms of uh, adapting to climate change, it's key that we look into where with this money come from, like both within um, the, the, the countries and outside the countries, right? Exactly. So looking about domestic resource mobilization as well, mm -hmm. but also from foreign direct investments. Mm -hmm. But the key is that the investments, a lot of the investment will, ha will have to come from the private sector. Yes, yes. And, and we, the initiative is also about how do you uh, then also address the issue of risk because there's always been a high perception of risk in Africa. Mm -hmm. And we need to find ways of uh, eliminating that risk so that when investors are coming into the continent, they're not having a high risk premium because of the perceived risk, which may not actually materialize. And in fact, there has been evidence that um, project finance uh, debts in Africa have the lowest default compared to other regions. So the initiative would, would also try to address the issue of how do we manage the risk so that we can have more confidence uh, for investors to come and invest in the continent mm. in energy, uh, clean energy actions. Okay, all right. And just to recap, the issue of African investment in renewable is thinking of powering a continent in a smart way. We're investing in an energy resource where that resource is highest. For example, say for example, if DRC wind is um, high, they invest in that particular while thinking of how best to power countries and the continent where not just industries have access to power, but also rural areas. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, um, the challenge is how do you ensure that one, when you generate electricity in a country, you're serving the needs of the people in that country, you're industrializing the country and so on. Mm. Right, that must be the first uh, starting point. Mm -hmm. The starting point cannot be where the generation of electricity in the one country is to supply another country. Okay. Yeah, the starting point is how do you address the energy needs of the country to start with? Mm -hmm. And then how do you, as a second stage, capitalize on what could uh, be achieved if you connected your power system? Because one day one country could be short mm -hmm. and they could be getting their power from another country. Mm -hmm. One day they can have a surplus and they could be sending that to the country where it is needed. But the overall objective must be addressing the electricity and energy needs of the country first. Yeah. Um, but the interconnection is also about how do you make that energy um, security for the country uh, uh, as a way of ensure, uh, hedging the lack of availability if the country is not generating enough. Mm. But there's an opportunity now to industrialize Africa in a smart way where you connect the whole continent with the power systems that are all interconnected, optimizing the uh, available resources so that when you invest in, in wind where the resource is the highest, it's going to be cheaper that way than um, because you're connecting to a system. But at the same time, they, they, we must also bear in mind that the transmission and distribution system cannot go everywhere where the energy is needed. So we also have to think about uh, business models for off-grid systems, and this is very yeah. critical on yeah. how we address the energy system in Africa. Mm. And in fact, not only off-grid, but also standalone uh, home systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because then the essence is to making sure that even in the remotest areas that do not have access to the national grid, they are mm -hmm. connected and small businesses, communities can be able to do businesses there with using yeah. different other forms of uh, power generation, probably like now we're talking of, of, of grids and standalones. Indeed. And this is an opportunity for African countries to clearly rethink their subsidy strategies. There is no point in subsidizing electricity generation that is connected to the grid because there is an economic case, the cost of renewables is falling and, and so forth. So maybe countries can use their limited public resources to leverage more Mm -hmm. on how do you make also the off-grid and standalone systems um, competitive. Because remember that people usually have the ability to pay. If you go to many remote areas, you'll find people running very old generators, yeah. right? That are not efficient, they're consuming a lot of oil and so on. But if you come up with a good business model that is able to bring them cleaner uh, energy, more secure, more reliable, mm -hmm. then they will be able to pay. And where they are not able to pay, then instead of uh, subsidizing the richer people in the urban areas, you can use those monies to, to ensure that the people in the rural areas are able to have access. Uh, in some countries, the, the tariffs are so low mm -hmm. uh, for people in urban areas who already have the capability to pay anyway. And so you're subsidizing tariffs for people who have the ability to pay, whilst people in the remote areas have no access at all. So it is time to, it's an opportunity for countries to rethink how they, um, they deal with the issue of subsidies and how do they get um, uh, the issue of upgrades and ho uh, home systems possible to support uh, uh, social and economic development in rural areas. Mm -hmm.
Okay, and talking of energy, we've seen during this pandemic, um, emissions have come totally down. Of course, those are corona-driven uh, emission reduction. But then when, of course, economies open up, we will actually see skyrocketing of emissions. But I'm wondering how critical is energy when it comes to recoveries and also making sure that we, remain, we stay within the Paris Agreement globally? Yes, in fact, um, it's good I emphasize globally because climate change is a global thing. Mm. Um, so whilst you can have countries making serious commitments to do something, if everybody does, doesn't do what has to be done, then we don't fight climate change. So globally, it's, it's saying that we, have, we must have concerted global action. Mm. And many countries have um, come up to, uh, with uh, huge stimulus packages. And I think it is important that those stimulus packages put uh, clean energy and climate action at the center. And remember that um, the common belief is that uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19, mm-hmm. is um, mm-hmm. a zoonotic uh, mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a disease that uh, arises from a, a pathogen that crosses from uh, animals to, to humans. Yeah. And climate change has been causing a lot of uh, land degradation, mm-hmm. loss of uh, uh, habitat, and so on. And also because of this chronic lack of energy, in many remote areas in Africa, people are having to encroach more and more into natural habitats to look for foil wood. Mm-hmm. So these two mm-hmm. factors combine to increase the risk of such zoonotic diseases happening. So therefore, coming out of COVID-19, a zoonotic disease, is how do we ensure that actions uh, don't lead to any such um, uh, opportunities in the future, i.e. we can tackle climate change as an essential part of dealing with COVID-19. Also remembering that climate change itself is a very serious crisis that is going to kill more people, if not already, than uh, COVID-19. So we have these two serious crises that if globally we don't come out of it strong, we don't, stronger and with more ambitious and, and well-thought-out strategies to deal with climate change, we're only building more trouble to, to, to come. We have countries like G20 uh, responsible for 80% of global emissions. How critical is it that um, as, as nations revise their emissions, their, their national commitments, how critical is it that the rich countries that are, are highest emitters also reduce in terms of the fossil fuel like coal we've seen used to make sure that we stay, because if Africa, even if Africa goes on 100% renewable energy, but then the highest emitters do not reduce in their use of fossil fuels, how critical is it for them to raise their ambition? Yes, uh, it is important for everybody to do their bit and, uh, and do their bit in their respective capabilities and also in their respective historic um, responsibilities for causing climate change. But I would like to see the issue of how you take up renewables uh, different, slightly differently. Okay. Um, the entry point, in my view, should not be about emission reductions. Mm-hmm. The entry point should be about, is it a good thing to do? And why is it a good thing to do? It is a good thing to do because it creates more jobs. Mm-hmm. It um, diversifies your energy uh, system. It, it gives you the opportunity to reach the populations that uh, would normally be difficult to reach uh, from the grid. It gives you the opportunity to, to uh, catalyze productive uses of energy, uh, particularly for women and children, uh, spurring uh, business opportunities and so on. Then from those socioeconomic benefits, the next thing then it says, yeah, but after all, once you do that, 
you also have uh, environmental benefits. You also have emission reductions and all of that. So I would like to think of renewable energy being seen not as something that you do because you have to reduce emissions, but something that you do to attain development. And one element part of that development is that you also reduce emissions and then ensure that that development can be sustainable. Africa still depends hugely on imported technology, especially when it comes to wind, solar. There's a cost that comes in terms of maintenance, right? In terms of these technologies. If we are thinking of this, renewable energy is a good thing to go. It will actually, in terms of increased jobs. And can we have homemade or uh, can we come up with technologies that are affordable? Because then this mainly technologies comes in in terms of loans or uh, grants from other diff- from the richer countries. Can we think of... Um, technologies that are home-based, that are cheaper, that it's easy to maintain them. And in terms of discarding in future when it comes to it, because we don't also want to be polluting our environment as much as we get. Mm. Like when you look at the small standalones, like um, solar systems, the small ones, you find something comes in from, uh, you know, it's imported and then after a couple of months, then it's dissolved, can't, then it's actually thrown into a water, thrown into and we cannot recycle them. Do we have to rethink also of the technologies that we're using and also look into our, the, the, the youth, the manpower we have, the youth. We've seen youth coming up with a lot of technologies, especially during in different countries during this corona uh, pandemic period. <laughs> Is the time we think of local technologies that we can use that are sustainable, that are cheaper? Indeed, uh, you make a very, very uh, important point about um, how do we, uh, build technological capability on the continent. And as you rightly say, the pandemic actually uh, showed us how much innovation uh, um, is happening on the continent. Young people are coming up with so uh, much innovations. And in fact, just last week, the Economic Commission for Africa had um, an innovation investment uh, uh, forum for one week mm-hmm. where uh, young people were showcasing the innovations in medical technologies and solutions to COVID-19. And it's really amazing. Then the question is, how do we get the countries now to to transform those innovations into uh, technologies, into manufacturing, into industrialization, Mm -hmm. into stronger health systems, into stronger energy systems and so on. And for that, we need need policy and we need transformational leadership to, to say, if we're going to go renewables, it will not be based on importing everything. It will be based on incrementally or increasingly having capability on the continent, especially with the free trade, the African continental free trade, that components can be sourced from within the continent for different things. And that is why when countries like South Africa, for example, had the Renewable Energy Procurement Program, it was based on the principle of local content, that um, over a period of time, the country should be able to be in a position to have more of the content on the deployment value chain from within the country. Now with the continental free trade, you can see more of that content from within the continent. And so if Kenya, for example, is already beginning to produce through its investments in wind, and if you had a uh, local content agenda, and you begin to have a situation where components for wind deployment have been produced in Kenya, and then if you're going to build wind in um, South Africa or somewhere else, where those components are needed, then you've shortened the, 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 the value chain, you made availability, you build the capacity on the continent. But most importantly, as we say, 
we've seen the potential that exists on the continent from this pandemic, uh, from what young people are doing and so on. And now we need the leadership and the uh, policies to ensure that those are not transformed into uh, investment in, in production, investment in industrialization, so that um, we have a stronger Africa. And in fact, if you talk about, uh, if we had uh, better local content, better production of these components, and you have renewable energy pro uh, projects that are being slowed down now because um, the pandemic uh, interrupted uh, supply chains. Now, if those components were coming from within Africa, that would not be the, the, the same problem. Mm -hmm. So this is an opportunity really to rethink how to industrialize Africa, to rethink how you capitalize on the uh, innovation and the uh, youth uh, capacity that I have on the continent to have a stronger Africa going forward. And does that, that also means that we have to also think in terms of putting in research. We have to invest much into looking to local yes. technologies. We also have to look into research, researching uh, what we need as a continent. Absolutely. Research and development are, are, are crucial. And they have to be, uh, again, a, a strong commitment to invest in regional uh, R&D research and development. It doesn't make sense for, let's say, uh, South Africa, let's say, Ghana to have its own uh, R&D and then Kenya has its own and then Cote d'Ivoire has its own. If we think about ex establishing regional R&D and D centers of excellence, uh, on different areas of these technologies that are emerging now as what could become uh, the key uh, technology that make Africa stronger. And then as a continent, uh, countries can invest in uh, regional research and development uh, centers uh, to spur this uh, innovation and, and that leads to the transformation that we need. Um, but then, as I said, it requires the policy and leadership uh, to think of this beyond national boundaries to so think of it from a regional continental perspective. Without doubt, it will be a big challenge because the idea is not only to develop these technologies to do things in Africa, that's the starting point, but we also want those technologies to also fit into the global um, value chains. And that requires uh, standards and certification, which again goes back to the point you were making that at the moment we have a system where the standards and uh, certification systems are not in place to ensure that even the components that are being imported that meet certain standards. And hence the reason why you said you will have components imported after a year or two, they're no, they no longer working because they're not the right components for the right systems and so on. So the issue of ensuring a continental and national standards and certification system becomes very important uh, going forward. Mm. For the continent, uh, the standardization, does that lie within individual countries or within the African Union? I think, I think it's both. I think it's both. You need to have a continental strategy because we have a continental free trade. Mm -hmm. So they, if the st st uh, standards and testing regime in Kenya are different from the standards and testing regimes in, in uh, Ethiopia, and then components have to move from Ethiopia to to Kenya, then I think you have a problem. So I think we need a regional perspective supported or underpinned by national uh, programs mm. for testing and certification. Linus, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate your time. And as usual, I sincerely appreciate your input. And thank you so much for joining us today.
Thank you, Sophia, and thank you for the invitation. All right. And with that, we come to the end of our session today. Thank you so much for being part of this. Remember, you can send your contributions and you can send your questions to info at sofimbogwa.com. Next week, we'll be looking into how Africa is investing in research and development and why it is critical, especially given the COVID-19 pandemic, to invest in research and development for Africa. Until then, Kwaheri, I do wish you a productive and safe week ahead. Floods, droughts, locusts, climate change. There is a lot going on in and around us in Africa and super fast. We are all seeing and feeling the effect it has on how we eat, move around and even how we can make a living. For this reason, join me Sophie Mbogwa, a Kenyan environmental journalist, for a weekly podcast, The Africa Climate Conversations. Africa Climate Conversations aims at helping you understand what climate change is all about, how it affects you and your family, what is being done in Africa, and what you can do to adapt and mitigate to its impacts no matter where you are in Africa. Inaendeshwa na Afripods. 